0: Chat, a podcast. We try to do it monthly, podcast for and about your health. I'm Andy Friedman, LICSW and certified cognitive behavioral therapist. And with me always is the lovely
1: Dr. Alyssa Handler, internal medicine here in Beverly. Now 15 years in Beverly, 20 years awesome. in practice. I just had my anniversary. So. Oh,
0: congratulations. And Dr. I do An- want
1: to say that it is our first. Uh, session of the 2020 season. That's right. So we've this is now our first episode of 2020. First episode of 2020. And we've had now a year under our belts of doing
0: That's the right. health That's right. It's actually an anniversary, our anniversary, too. Exactly. Wait, I should have gotten hats and, you know. Hats and blowers. What do you call those things? You know. With the thing The blowers. There. The yeah. blowers. blowers. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, anyways, back to the program. <laughs> so today, we are so excited um, to welcome... Dr. Melissa Sherman, who is an OBGYN at Beverly Hospital, and she is the medical director of the Compass Program, which is a program for pregnant and parenting women in recovery from substance abuse. And today, we're going to talk to Dr. Sherman about menopause, a subject very near and dear to my heart.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to come and chat with you
0: today. Well, thank you for coming. So... Dr. Sherman, why don't you kind of define – we like definitions here yes, at Yes, we Jet. always
1: like to start, as I told you, we like to start with defining what it is we're actually talking about since a lot of people are not familiar with what is the actual start of menopause, what does that mean? When people are starting into symptoms, people think that's their menopause. And I have to usually explain what is perimenopause versus menopause. So I'd love for you to
2: delve into that. Sure, sure. So menopause technically is one year without a period. And that's the standard definition that we use for defining menopause. Another part of menopause, though, can be what we call vasomotor symptoms. And these are symptoms that can occur both before and after menopause. They're caused by changes in ovary function in that time period, which lead to changes in how your body regulates temperature. So what people will experience are hot flashes, night sweats, irritability, <laughs> skin changes, and hair changes. In the perimenopause is when those symptoms can occur four to five years either side of that year when they actually stop having periods. So I think it's important to kind of make that distinction. I think a lot of people come in in their mid-40s and they say, I think I'm in menopause, but they're still having periods. So technically they're having symptoms, which we would call perimenopause. They're not quite in menopause yet.
1: So what is the average age that this happens? And what is considered early menopause? And is that dangerous? That's
2: actually a question that comes up frequently. Yeah. So, average age of menopause is fifty one but the range of ages at which menopause can occur are forty five to fifty five so people can still some lucky people will have periods up through the mm-hmm. age of fifty five mm-hmm. um, but some people can ha- stop having periods as early as forty five there's also something called premature ovarian insufficiency. And that's when people have menopause or stop having periods before the age of 45. That can be associated with certain risks. Uh, These are women who, because of loss of estrogen, are higher risk for bone loss, especially if they start having menopause early. That estrogen that's made by the ovaries is helpful in maintaining bone strength. Also, these are people who might be at slightly higher risk of heart disease. We know that the longer the ovaries function, the more helpful it is in reducing the risk of heart disease. And for women, you know, we talk, about things like uh, menopause and motor symptoms and breast cancer, but the number one killer of women is heart disease. So whatever we can do as providers to help maintain healthy hearts in our patients is most helpful.
1: So it's very interesting that you say that since we did have one of our prior health yep. chats we had a about on- cardiovascular health. And and I do talk a lot about that and the cholesterol issues. And um, So what kind of changes can... Other than what you just mentioned, are there other changes in a woman that people should, that women should be aware of that are happening around the time of their menopause or after?
2: So, there most common thing we'll notice is changes in periods. Okay, so generally for most women, a healthy period or a normal period is one that's regular. Um, so, typical standard is. A, period length anywhere from 25 to 35 day cycles having periods for three to seven days. In that perimenopause, which is what I talk about in the office as the time of ovarian dwindling, <laughs> the ovaries don't just stop. They, they diminish in their effectiveness. So that can lead to cycle changes. So people can get 21 day cycles or they're having a period every three weeks, or they might stop skipping periods. Those are still considered fairly normal for that time frame in terms of changes in ovary function. Abnormal bleeding, are if people are having much longer periods than I Expected much heavier periods than expected, or if they're bleeding in between periods. For women over 45, we know those women can be at higher risk for endometrial cancers. So in the perimenopause, mm. um, no woman should assume it's normal if they have substantial changes through their periods. They should always talk with a health care provider to make sure that it seems to fit in a relatively normal pattern.
1: Okay. Andy, did you have any questions that well come I mean, up so far?
0: let's, you know, I don't know if we're, we're at the point where we want to talk about the annoying symptoms well, I know from personal experience of menopause um, and what somebody could do to mitigate those symptoms and, and you specifically mentioned the vasomotor symptoms and you're
1: talking about the hot flash issues hot flashes,
0: night sweats. it's it really is it really is a sort of a dysregulation of temperature that's the way it. that's the way it feels to me so I might not be having a full-on hot flash or night sweats, but I can tell my temperature regulation is off. Right.
2: So in terms of the symptoms that people often will ask about if they come into the office, it's a bunch of things. It's hot flashes, which means where they have periods of the day intermittently where they'll feel hot and then not feel hot or feel hot and not feel make it flushed or yeah. sweat at that time. Um, at night, people give nighttime symptoms. Poor sleep can be due to some of those hot flashes happening at night or something called night sweats where people wake up just drenching through yeah. clothes and sheets that need to throw sheets off or alter temperature in their room. Um, people can have a lot more migraines around their periods if they're perimenopausal just from the drop in hormones in the second mm-hmm. half of their cycle. We see that a lot. Um, Changes in skin and hair and nails are also very common. Collagen strength and elasticity has a lot to do with estrogen function, and if that starts to wane, those are other changes that people may notice. Sounds, <laughs> sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, So horrible. I already know.
0: I already noticed the changes. So,
2: and, and these are important. You know, Women who start having these symptoms do have a higher risk of heart disease and bone fractures. So when people start having those kinds of symptoms and are complaining about them, it is time to sort of review what those are and what options might be to treat it if people want I think, you know, the first thing I talk about with people is that it's normal. It doesn't feel good, but it's normal. This is what happens to people as we age. Some people will sail through the menopause to have having periods and not have many symptoms. And some people will have a ton of symptoms starting five years before they go into menopause. The question is, how are those symptoms affecting their quality of life? Because if they are significantly affecting work life, parenting life, sleep, it is reasonable to talk about options to address them. But with anyone always, the first option is you don't have to treat it. They're not bothering you too much. If you're not having significant symptoms, then it's normal. But, you know, if you check and see how you're doing in three months, six months, nine months, call if you have any
0: concerns. Well, and, and also osteoporosis being – or bone loss, as you said, being one of those symptoms. We talk, We also had a really – We talked about osteoporosis. We talked about osteoporosis, and and I learned that estrogen is really important. Yes, bones are very
1: estrogen-sensitive. We talked about already in a whole program about making sure you get enough vitamin D and calcium, especially around the perimenopausal period when there's a big fluctuation. That's when the bones, as I understand, are most at risk. And so we've talked about that. And a question that comes up frequently in my practice is, how long can I expect to have these symptoms once I stop my period? So what, what would you counsel
2: somebody about that? Um, so the range studied is 6 to 12 years. That's mm-hmm. average. Yeah. So And so, some
1: people, it never goes away. Isn't right. that
2: correct? There can be people in their 70s and 80s who may continue to have symptoms, even well past menopause.
1: Yeah. And what can one do? you know I always give lifestyle suggestions, so so we 're talking about the non hormonal treatments right now of right. so uh, because there 's sort of a, a tree in my head where if someone 's not miserable, we talk about lifestyle things they can do if someone 's miserable, then we move on to maybe a medical treatment discussion so right now we 're talking just to define we 're talking about the non medical treatments mm-hmm. of of vasomotor symptoms or other symptoms in the body around the menopause or postmenopausal. So, what kinds of things
2: would you recommend? So, there are a lot of things that people can do that are non hormonal. Part of it is exercise. Exercise has been shown to be helpful in maintaining a healthy weight, it can definitely help with sleep and um, some symptoms. Wearing layers of clothing, especially loose-fitting, well-ventilated clothing, all those natural fibers and cottons that you can take on or off if you need to. Carrying fans if people need to can be done. Yep.
0: I got my my Spanish fan. I never leave home without a fan. There you go. (laughs) I never leave (laughs) home without it. carry a Spanish fan if that helps. Let me tell you, the Spanish women, they know. They know. They know. They do.
2: They know. They know. They do. Um, so in terms of other things that have been studied, acupuncture, yoga have been studied. They don't in the study seem to be particularly effective, but I think there's no harm in trying those things. I think yoga can be very helpful, especially for strength, and strength is important in helping reduce risk of factors, so it's not unreasonable to try that. And acupuncture is a really minimally invasive and can be effective for some people, though in the studies it hasn't been
0: shown to be particularly helpful or effective for symptoms. I think we can honestly say that exercise is good for every Yes, we've talked about that. (laughs) um,
1: Limiting alcohol and caffeine, as I understand, can make your symptoms. We actually – you had said both of those make the vasomotor symptoms worse Mm -hmm. if you're consuming alcohol and caffeine, which also affects your bone health, which – Wraps into other things we talked about in the program, alcohol. I did a whole program on alcohol, yep, I did a whole so this on alcohol. is interesting that it connects a lot to the prior program. So please listen to osteoporosis talk, alcohol talk, right. and um, cardiovascular, cardiovascular talk. Yep. So Dr. Sherman, I also was interested in your view of supplements, herbal supplements, because we used to recommend black cohosh all the time, and I feel like that's fallen out of favor or maybe yeah. not as helpful. What's your discussion on that?
2: Yeah, so you know, two other behavioral things to think about. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been shown to work. Ah, oh, there you go. here for my therapist here. Um, me and hypnosis. So th- that, really? that, that, there's some evidence that doing a few sessions of hypnosis might help. So a couple of other things out there that are that not medication the, the, the that the may basomotor. help with vasomotor motor symptoms.
0: Huh? I have yeah. to look that up. Now
2: let's move into herbal remedies. So the big thing to know about herbal remedies is their manufacture is not regulated. Right. So the challenge, I think, is, right. is that it may say you're getting black cohosh or donkai I mean, or have something no else. Idea. Um, it make, it's mo- usually garlic in most of wow. these when they've studied them. Or, or it might not be the right part of the plant that actually has the effect. So that's the limitation, I think, of using dietary supplements is that you don't have don't have a great standardization of the process. Right. To That will show you the manufacturer. So all of... The studies looking at all these herbs, and I have a whole list of them here, it's donkai, it is soy, um, evening primrose oil, black cohosh, crea, wild yam, um, flaxseed oil, ginseng, omega-3, pine bark, vitamin E, all these mixtures. In all the studies, the placebo effect was about equivalent to the Everything. Treatment effect. Right. So it's hard to say in that case that something is better than placebo. So when people do ask about them, um, that's what I talk about is that, A, we don't have control over the manufacturer. So it's hard to know exactly what you're getting. For donkai especially, there could be risks to that. People have gone to liver failure from getting the yeah. wrong part of the plants and mm. some of those the traditional um, herbal medications. Um, number two, you might have a 30% effect. Why not try it? I mean, it's it's equivalent to the placebo, right? (laughs) Right. There there, there probably is not a harm in trying it. The interesting thing about soy um, that I learned, I was reading up a little bit for the show, was that soy, when it is digested, can produce a non-steroidal estrogen, which is where there may be a benefit. But in North America, only 30% of people have the right digestive system to make that happen. So there are cultures where people use soy a lot to treat yeah. menopause. But in those cultures, they, they can digest it correctly.
0: Do we have any we think, idea what those cultures are? I guess it's not a European... East Asia is yeah. often where, where yeah. people use a lot of soy and have yeah. it in their
2: diet and there may be benefits. But in, in North America, at least only 30% huh. of women can metabolize it to have any effect. So mm. that's where the soy option kind of falls out for a lot of people.
1: When we say soy, how much soy are we talking about? Are we talking about just like soy milk
2: or? Right, this is soy having, that you're eating in your um, your tofu, your soy milk, yeah, adding so it into your diet. Quite a bit of soy. Yeah, I mean, you, people can still, it still may have just nutritional benefit overall, but sort of in terms of specifically having the benefit of producing an estrogen like effect, that is something that's limited.
0: Mm-hmm. And see, we sort of stopped doing soy because we heard that it has, because of the phytoestrogens, has this. Breast cancer risk, or whatever. So, they may not even be able to get the estrogen out of it. So, it, it it's benign.
2: <laughs> right. Unless, right? unless you like, are a metabolizer
0: who right, can produce so. that right. estrogen-like right. effect. Um, is there any data on the mental health aspects of going through menopause or losing estrogen?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think um, irritability and mood changes are really, really common in women going through that perimenopause. That's probably one of the big reasons people come in the office seeking treatment of some kind. They notice especially before menopause, there's like two weeks a month that I just can't function or I'm really irritable at work or I'm really harsh on my kids and I really don't like that about myself and how can I change that? And then certainly with sleep disruption and then with the more hot flashes, night sweats, after the change of menopause, people still have some ongoing concerns. But there are a lot of good good studies showing there are effective things that are not hormones that can be helpful. all of these are generally in the, in the class of what we call selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Mm-hmm. So these are medications that taken over time and it usually takes a few weeks for them to be effective, will raise levels in the brain called serotonin. Serotonin is neurotransmitter. That is what helps us feel good, right? So it's right. sort of like, I call it, it's sort of like leveling that playing field. It takes away those extremes that people are going through by providing the brain a happier mm-hmm. pathway. Um, <laughs> so there are many different ones that have been tested um, Things like Paxil, mm-hmm. Prozac have been tried. Effexor is one that may be particularly helpful in treating those symptoms, but a lot of insurances won't cover it until you've tried other things like the Paxil or Prozac first. Um, those are very helpful. Gabapentin is something else that mm-hmm. has been studied that can be effective. Um, with that medication, it's most commonly studied for the night sweats and for sleep um, it is a nerve modulator, um, but taken at night can help a lot with the overnight symptoms. So sometimes oh, if people come in, they say about. what's bothering me the most is the night sweats and my poor sleep. I said, well, if you don't want a hormonal approach, here's something you could try. Um, a caution with gabapenta is it can be sedating. So if people are taking it for sleep, you know, taking it before bedtime, and maybe the first, when they're trying it out first, not taking it at a time when they have to get up at five in the morning and drive right away, yeah. and just see how it affects them. But that's something that can be titrated, and and mm-hmm. I'm sure that I'm sure in your practice you probably people who take it for pain in a more chronic basis. Yeah. It can be used two or three times a day um, for people who are having around the clock symptoms and titrate it up. The other thing that can help with nighttime is clonidine. Clonidine is kind clonidine. of an old school blood pressure medication, um, mm-hmm. but it is something that can help with nighttime symptoms and sleep. So those of of the non-hormonal options, those are typically things we prescribe, something from the class of the SSRIs, which can help a lot with mood and can also help with the hot flashes as well um, for nighttime symptoms that gabapentin or the clonidine.
1: And in my experience, because I also do prescribe many of the, those things you talked about, that we can get away with very low doses, right? So we're not needing a high dose that we might need in chronic pain or depression, but we are able to use what I call as a little tweak dose, a little, little teeny dose to really help take the edge off of their Menopausal sleep sy- symptoms or menopausal brain syndrome is what I call it. I've named that myself. Um, that actually does not exist, but I've named that the uh, <laughs> you menopausal heard it here brain syndrome. Health chat first, <laughs> um, and and I do use venlafaxine, which is generic Effexor. I used to use more gabapentin, although I thought the studies were better on the venlafaxine. So I've actually moved more towards that in terms of recommending, um, and now. There's new information about hormones, which a I'd love to segue. transition into yeah. yeah. talking yeah. about that, yep. if you would. Um, and I know it's a very extensive and controversial
2: topic, and I know there's some new information that we wanted to share. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good transition. We have, I think, talked about all the different options for um, not hormonal medications. There are certain people who not, should not take hormones. That's probably the first thing to talk about. For right. people who have had cancers, like breast cancer, um, sometimes advanced endometrial cancers, um, they should not be taking hormonal agents. That can lead to recurrences. Um, people who have undiagnosed bleeding, people who've had strokes, blood clots, um, serious cardiovascular disease. Um, Those are folks who are not candidates for estrogen. Or if people have had, you know, bad migraines when on hormones, again, people who could be at a higher stroke risk. So the first thing is making sure that people are safe to take hormones. The other thing that they should have is an up-to-date cholesterol panel. Um, Some formulations of hormones can affect those lipid levels, so it's good to know where people are starting from, especially when we're talking about heart disease risk and starting medications. So those were the baseline talk that we have with folks. I mean, there's not a contraindication for smokers. There are for birth control pills and smokers. But because smokers are higher risk for osteoporosis, some of these low-dose regimens of hormones might be appropriate and effective for mm. oh. there. Okay. So in terms of the hormones, so back in 2002, and I remember this because I was in medical school, on my OBGYN rotation, <laughs> the phone started ringing off the hook one day because a study was done at that time. that was called the Women's Health Initiative, and that's looking at long-term women's health. And in that study, they took women over the age of 60... That's a key thing to remember when we talk about hormones. They started them on conjugated equine estrogen, which is otherwise known as Premarin, Mm -hmm. which comes from pregnant mare urine, Mm -hmm. um, combined with medroxyprogesterone, which is a synthetic progesterone, and put them on it for heart prevention. They were trying, looking to see if they could actually prevent heart disease because that's the time when heart disease has become more prevalent and risky for women. And they stopped the study early because they found that in that age group of women, after three to five years of use, they had slightly higher risks of breast cancers, strokes, blood clots, and cardiovascular disease. So based on that, the huge pendulum swung and everyone stopped taking their hormones or were told they shouldn't take it because yeah. we, we did, they did show it was not effective in that age group at preventing heart disease. And so I think what's happened in the time since and is the pendulum has slowly been swinging back for a bunch of reasons. I think a lot of people who were dedicated to the cause of helping women with symptoms, especially those women in the 50s who are still relatively healthy and may not have those same risks, were not being offered hormones, which could be very helpful, again, just to help get through work life and sleep life and child life and all of those things. Um, so the pendulum is... Uh, the <laughs>
0: the
2: brain fog is real, like right? Yeah, <laughs> the pendulum has swung back, and we're now I like it. at the It's point, a swendulum because it's it swung back. It's swung yes. back. Yes. I like yeah, that. I like it. Um, it has come back to the point where certainly for younger women with symptoms, it is appropriate to offer hormone replacement, and they've also changed the formulations. I think we're we're using now. We have patches which can provide very low but effective doses. So there's thought by, by using a patch, you do a couple of things. It may reduce your risk for blood clots because you're using less hormone. Also because you're not taking it by mouth. Anything you take by mouth has to go through your liver and get metabolized. And that's where you can have more problems with your lipids and more problems with Uh, blood clots. So if you're administering that estrogen in a different way, through a time-release patch, you may actually reduce some of those risks. We know that if you start hormones at that younger age, in that first few years after menopause, you actually might reduce that heart risk a little bit. There seems to be a little efficacy window where in around the time of menopause, if you start hormones, you can have a positive impact in terms of cardiovascular health, in terms of memory, um, and obviously in terms of symptoms. But if you wait 10 years and then start hormones, you're not going to have that benefit. So there's a whole bunch of reasons that we should be offering this to appropriate candidates at a younger age. If they have would like it or have tried and failed other therapies, it could be helpful.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful information because it's so much confusion about you know, when you can start the hormone therapy, how far down you can be. And we even talked about how do you consider whether you're In menopause or not, I mean, you can start having symptoms before you stop having your periods. I think
2: it's a little trickier sometimes when people are still having periods um, because you need to manage those as well. Um, But, you know, again, since that study had come out, we've had higher use of what we call IUDs or intrauterine devices. They have a carrier progesterone called levonorgestrel. Um, We can place those. They're effective for five to seven years. Uh, You can use that with a low-dose estrogen patch, and that can be very effective in that perimenopause. It might help manage the periods that are people are having difficulty with, and it may also address some of those vasomotor symptoms. Um, IUDs can be used. I should say right here, the reason we need progesterone is if women still have a uterus, they cannot take estrogen by itself. Right. If you take estrogen by itself and you have a uterus, you can get endometrial cancer. The uterus needs a balance. It needs both. Um, Estrogen will promote growth of lining, and progesterone will what we call mature it. So you need both of those things to keep the uterus safe in the menopause. Um, so that's why the combination is what we offer to all women. For women who've had a hysterectomy for other reasons, they don't have to take the progesterone, progesterone. unless they had really severe
0: endometriosis. Um, if so they, the endometrial lining could be up in the flow. Because then they too, have
2: so. endometrial lining all over their abdomen. So if you only give them oh. estrogen, then they could have more pain and problems. Oh, so those I are see. people who should also probably have a progesterone added. And the type of progesterone you, you use may be important as well. Most of the estrogens are pretty much the same. Um, we, there, there's premarin still exists. You can use the conjugated equine estrogens as one option Um, but most of them now are synthetic estradiol. Estradiol is what your body normally makes as an estrogen that's effective on all of your tissues Um, but with the estradiol it could be a patch, it can be a pill, um, it could be administered vaginally with something called femring. There are a lot of ways to deliver it. The progesterone piece may be the part that increases risk for breast cancer in the long run. There's some newer studies showing that the progesterone, Ah, especially synthetic progesterones, might be the cause of slightly increased risk of breast cancers in women on hormone replacement. And I do mean slightly increased risk. It's an extra one case per 1,000 women. So we're not talking about a massive increase in risk, but a slight increase. And for people with family histories who have concerns, that's very real, though. Hmm. So the recommendation now for progesterone use is that ideally we should be using what's called micronized progesterone or prometrium. It is a natural progesterone. It is not synthetic in the way that um, some of the other formulations are, and it may have less of a risk.
0: Oh very interesting and and I think maybe you we want to talk about that if you start taking hormones and you're stopped having your periods you're not going to have your Period. if you start taking hormones or if you do that maybe is a bad sign?
2: Yeah, so so for women who are menopausal, um, sometimes when people are starting hormone replacement therapy, um, they may have some intermittent light bleeding in the first few months as their body's getting used to the hormone dosages. If people are having bleeding after six months of use, that it has to be evaluated. Usually we would check an ultrasound or do a biopsy of the endometrial lining um, just to ensure that there aren't any concerns.
0: And that might be a An indication that they're on too high of a dose. Or or maybe you need a a, a higher dose of progesterone to balance the effect of the estrogen. Yeah, yeah. And we talked a little bit about how exercise is helpful. And, of course, exercise, you know, I love to talk about exercise, but also diet. And is there any foods that are contraindicated or any foods that might help? Other than we talked a little bit about soy, but...
2: Not specifically. I think. I think more of the research is on foods that don't help. I think you've talk, covered that already right, in terms yeah, yeah, of talking yeah. about alcohol, right, um, and caffeine, or things that yeah. can affect bone density and it can worsen hot flashes. So usually it's avoiding those kinds of foods. And, and if I think for, as for all walks of life, more of a plant based diet. Yeah,
0: um, for, everything, whole, for everything, right, mm-hmm. for everything. But there's nothing in particular that. Um,
1: okay. One um, of the things that you uh, came up during our dis- pre-discussion was you, um, I just want to make sure we cover the bioidentical formulations and that it was actually new information to me yeah. that the bioidentical hormones have equal risk to uh, hormone replacement as, as the standard hormone replacement that we talk about. Yeah. So can you speak to
2: that a little bit? Yeah. So in the wake of the Women's Health Initiative um, study results that happened in two thousand and two, bioidentical hormones appeared. I think it was a response to that for women who still wanted hormones, but they wanted something that was safer. I put in or more natural is what people are thinking. <clears throat> and, and there were um, certain celebrities um, who really promoted that as a way to feel young at an older age and, and, and had a lot, got a lot of press. Um, my Bioidentical hormones are hormones that are made at a compounding pharmacy. This is a specialty pharmacy that will make a specific mixture, usually based on an interview and assessment. The way that a lot of these pharmacists will evaluate people is to do salivary hormone testing or ask for blood hormone testing. And, and that is not shown to be very accurate. Okay. So we, when we are treating symptoms, we're treating people with the intent of reducing or eliminating symptoms. You don't need to measure levels to do that. Your, your mark of how successful you're being is how the patient feels. Okay. We're not checking when they're checking levels in the bioidentical sense they're trying to see if they're giving the person enough to achieve a certain blood level. Okay, um, And there could be risks to that. I think for women who take bioidentical hormones that are a dose too high, again, higher hormone level could mean higher risk of blood clots or strokes or unscheduled bleeding or risk of breast, those breast and endometrial cancers. So um, important thing for people to know, I think, about bioidentical hormones is the way the hormones work in our body is like a lock and a key mechanism. right? The hormone is a key that unlocks an action to help you feel better. It doesn't matter Go where the key it. gets made, right? I can, it could can be made by Y pharmaceuticals. It can be made by any of the generic people making the patches. It could be made by the compounding pharmacy. It is the same key and the same risk supply. And a responsible compounding ther- th- therapist.
0: Pharmacist. Pharmacist. <laughs> pharmacist.
2: Brain fogging <laughs> it <Yeah>, right? Yeah. <laughs> a responsible compounding pharmacist will give them the risks and discuss it with them. And there are certainly pharmacists who are absolutely will do that and are, are, are good folks to work with. Um, It is suggested that if we are recommending bioidentical approach that people have tried and maybe not done well on the traditional or or more prescribed therapies. Because, again, the challenge is if I give someone a patch, I know exactly what dose that person is getting or a pill, or a ring. Like it's, we know from studies. With compounding, they're mixing it every time you go in. So you could have some batches, batches that work better, some batches that may not work as well, or some that might be too strong. So again, the, again, they're, the compounding pharmacies generally do a good job of monitoring their dosage strength, but it can be a little bit uneven. Um, so it's recommended that we document that somewhere that someone's tried what we have to offer and that they failed it. And the other important thing to know is they get all of their Pharmaceuticals from the same place everyone else does. They're not growing estrogen in the backyard. <laughs> they're not getting the progesterone from wild yams. They're getting the the base that they're using for the compounding comes to the exact same place that all the other companies are basing their. Uh,
0: Which prescriptions is pregnant mare urine? Or no? Pardon? It's pregnant Mary urine that they get it from? It's, or uh, so? I mean, there most people are using
2: estradiol now, which is not oh, estradiol. That's right. You mentioned that. Yes. Yeah, the, the compounding pharmacies generally will use estradiol. They claim there's a safer estrogen called estrone. They will use sometimes or estriol, um, but it's. It, it, effectively having the same effect in the body and that's an important thing to know I do send people for bioidentical hormone replacement at times they may have tried it and, and not done well with other things or maybe they, that's the route that they prefer to go but as long as we've discussed that the risks are the same and the other thing I will say that progesterone piece is the other hard piece progesterone yeah. creams don't get absorbed very well by the skin and when you need to have that progesterone in your system to protect the uterus if you want a natural version that prometrium will do it which is the capsule that you can take estrogen oh. creams are are fairly effective but the progesterone part of it may not be as effective huh. with a compounded mm-hmm. approach. Okay.
1: So I have one more question about hormone treatment. And is there an age where we're supposed to stop? Because I have women that have been on their hormones and they come in and they're 62 years old, let's say, and I do worry about their cardiovascular risk after 60 of being on their hormones. So what, what should I tell my patient?
2: So uh, the guidelines for the North American Menopause Society, which are freely accessible to anyone who wants to read them, is there is no hard stop for menopause treatment. It is a discussion that needs to be had every year, I think, with people. Because as they do get older, as they have been on hormones a longer time, the risks do go up a bit. But a lot of people at 62 are still teaching, working in their lives, and they're terrified Terrified of, of what the effect might be if they went off the hormones, because over half of people who stop hormone replacement therapy will resume symptoms. So I think that's just the time to have a heart to heart conversation. What do you What do you want to do? Do you understand what the risks are? Has anything new developed in terms of diabetes, high blood pressure, other things that might make it unsafe to continue? Um, but as long as we've had that conversation, if people are healthy and wish to continue, um, I'm happy to continue them. And then when they when they reach retirement age or 65 and stop work, then so let's talk about it. At okay. that point, where you may not. So need there it as is much. an
1: age at which you would say it
2: sounds reasonable. It should be stopped. I think after sixty-five, it's definitely okay. important to have the Good conversation. But again, if if people feel well on it and don't have contraindications and and have a good understanding of the risks and benefits of continuing it. I think it's fine, too. Great.
1: Thank you so much. And now we wanted to get to our most favorite topic, which is actually the vaginal effects of menopause. Yes. And right now, it seems to be that there's more than one option. Um, And I was wondering if you could speak to that, maybe just five minutes, about how would you counsel someone on treatments of
2: vaginal estrogen? Is it safe? And what are the risks and benefits of that? Yeah, so one of the common symptoms of menopause is vaginal dryness or painful sex. And there are a lot of women out there who may not have a lot of the hot flashes, night sweats, or more systemic things, but only have vaginal dryness. And that's the main question or concern they have when they come to the office. So as we talked about earlier, estrogen is important in helping keep collagen effective. Collagen is the stretchy stuff in our skin. um, And in the vagina, that is important for elasticity. And that's what people lose with that thinning out or atrophy that happens after menopause. <laughs> so there are, you, again, you can try, you don't think you have to treat. You can try over-the-counter regimens, though a lot of those have multiple ingredients, which could be super irritating in, in the setting of atrophy. But there are some decent ones. There is replens, I think, is a common over-the-counter vaginal moisturizer, and that is appropriate to use. Um, natural oils are fine to use in the vagina, um, olive oil, coconut oil good lubricants for intercourse too. Um, Single ingredient things tend to cause less irritation. So it's certainly a a cheap and effective way to treat dryness symptomatically if people need to. Nothing works better than estrogen, though, unfortunately, um, in terms of helping restore some of that elasticity, which leads to comfort. Um, there are a lot of ways that can be administered, but all of these are very, very low dose. They are not things that need, you do not need to take a progesterone with that estrogen if you're just using a topical vaginal preparation. Um, the classic things that are out there are usually creams, which you, comes with an applicator like you might see with yeast treatment. The tablets that are out there don't tend to work very well. Um, they've they've nope, studied they them, and, and I think well. for women who actually dissolve the tablets, it can work well, but some women just don't dissolve it. They don't have enough moisture. In that dry area, to actually have that top tablet be absorbed, well, to be that effective. makes a lot of sense to me. Yes. Yeah, so some they're more convenient, they're less messy than a cream, but they right. may not be as effective.
0: It they're, comes with an applicator. Each one comes it, with an applicator, so yeah. you wouldn't know that you needed to moisturize when using that. Right.
2: <laughs> um, there are some newer things out there on the market. Um, there is Invexi, which is a, it's another vaginal estrogen. I think it's a, it's a lower dose. We know. When we first started offering the vaginal estrogen pills, um, I think it was like 20 micrograms. We've gone down to 10, and the invexy is now a 7.5. So it's an ultra-low dose, so again, for people who don't need as much. There is Estring, which is a flexible ring that you place once every three months into the vagina. Um, it's a very low dose. Not to be confused with the Femring, which is more for treating that's the whole the pre- system. That's the
0: progesterone? That's thing? estrogen. Oh, it's estrogen. The Femring is estrogen, too? The Femring is okay. estrogen,
2: too. All right. I'm just <laughs> Excuse me. Um but the estering and the creams are probably the most effective. And it can be helpful for some urinary symptoms, too. I think a lot of people are starting to have more stress urinary incontinence um, and urge incontinence in the perimenopause. Again, loss of that collagen and those support structures in the vagina can can um, affect urinary symptoms. It won't fix incontinence, but it can help support the bladder neck is what we call it. That's where the pee Mm -hmm. comes out in the vagina. Um, So estrogen will help uh, with some blood flow to that area and help with some of that elasticity and strength, which can be an effective way to address some symptoms.
0: Well, that that is extremely helpful information. And I don't think the average woman understands that there's these options for that. So I really appreciate that. And we do
1: want, as having this discussion with most of our topics, is we want to encourage people and women to bring them up with their physician, even yes. if the physician isn't comfortable enough to ask them, how is sex going? What's going on in your vagina? Like, these are important questions that I myself have now been asking more people because they are important and they affect our health, not just for cosmetic reasons, but for urinary health, cardiovascular health. These are all really important health questions health. that exactly we need to have these discussions with our patients and encourage people to bring them up with their physicians um, if, if the physician hasn't already brought it up with them.
0: Which is, which is why we're doing this podcast, to get the information out there. That is so desperately Great. needed. And there's a lot of fear and misinformation
1: yeah. um, out
0: about hormone treatment
1: and um, everything we're talking about. So I appreciate that you're trying to educate us about that.
0: I have to say that I, I learned a lot today that I was had my own fears and stuff about the hormone treatment or what's appropriate, who's a candidate, who's not a candidate. And I didn't even think to bring it up with my doctor. So... Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank thanks for so having much. me today. It was yeah, great to talk with you. Yeah,
1: that was great. You. Thanks, Melissa, so, Dr. Sherman.
0: Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I like – we're all friends here. Yeah. I like to, to thank our guest, Dr. Melissa Sherman, for coming here and talking to us about this very important topic. Um, and I also like to thank – my co-host, Dr. Alyssa Handler, uh, internal medicine as usual, along with Andy Friedman, certified cognitive behavioral therapist and licensed independent clinical social worker. This has been Health Chat. Thank you for joining us and stay tuned for our next topic.